I think we're really lucky to have this really unique relationship with these other space exploration companies to be helping us do what we want to do, which is explore the final frontier. This is the Sciences Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration only on MarketScale. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sciences Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. The business of space has always been an intriguing one and continues to draw the attention of some of the biggest venture capitalists of our time. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic is trying to develop the first scalable commercial space tourism. Jeff Bezos is investing in Blue Origin, which is hoping to solve our global resource problems by taking heavy industry off planet. Even Elon Musk's SpaceX is developing rockets to travel to Mars, as well as deploying thousands and thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit. Many see this draw to invest in space to be an exciting, open landscape. But the expanding space economy already has some very clear issues, especially the increasing amount of debris in low Earth orbit. So how critical are these early issues to solve, and what will it take to keep the space economy healthy? And from a larger perspective, what is drawing attention to the stars today? So I'm sitting down now with Ron Lopez, President and Managing Director of AstroScale US, to get his take. Ron, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Daniel. Good morning. Great. Um, doing, uh, I'm doing well. It's great to be here with you uh, this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure getting to chat. Looking forward to this space-themed conversation. Uh, let's start big picture. What is the state of the space economy right now? I know I listed out some of the big venture capitalists that are bringing their projects to space, um, but from a, a broader point of view, what are the investment opportunities that are drawing attention to the space economy today? And what sort of opportunities do you think are the most tangible moving forward? Yeah, so it really is exciting times in in the space industry right now. You know, I've been uh, in and out of, of space, in space and defense for, uh, you know, almost 25 years. And um, it is a bit of a cyclical business, but I think right now, uh, we're, we're seeing some significant growth that's different than what we saw maybe 20 years ago when there was a little bit of a spurt uh, in in space. And people were talking about some of the th- same things that you mentioned uh, there, there in your intro. Uh, now, the first thing to understand, though, is space right now is absolutely critical to our terrestrial economy here on, on Earth. There isn't anything that we don't do, right, uh, day in and day out. There's nobody that's not affected or that relies on space when you go to the atm to withdraw cash when you uh open your your maps application that's using a gps to get to your to your friend's house for dinner there's any number of different services that are space-based that are providing uh value to our lives here on earth every day so um in terms of that that space economy that you talked about uh, today, right now, it is an absolutely critical component of of doing business and getting along, getting on with our with our daily lives. What we're also seeing is a lot of growth that's happening now as a result of the cost of launch coming down, uh, as well as computing technology uh, becoming cheaper. You can do a lot more on a smaller chip uh, nowadays. You know, Moore's law continues to to uh, work its magic, and so we're seeing a lot 
of uh, money going into space, as you mentioned, funding the development of uh, new capabilities at, uh, at low Earth orbit, at LEO. Uh, there is any number of different uh, mega constellations. These are, for listeners that are not familiar, constellations are basically groupings of satellites where you have companies that are going to be launching uh, hundreds, in some cases, uh, tens of thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit that are going to be providing communications uh, services. Uh, some are already providing imaging of, of every point on Earth uh, right. every every so often, and that's uh, geospatial data that, that's uh, very uh, useful for a lot of different industries. So, yeah, over the coming years, uh, there, there are uh, plans for several companies then to launch mega constellations and take that space-based services to the next level. And I think what we're going to see as a result of that is um, the growth of the, the, the space economy in general, not just the economy that provides value back to Earth, but uh, a lot of things going on orbit, right? Uh, as we look to get back to the moon and then beyond that to Mars, uh, that's going to drive a lot of commercial activity as well, especially uh, in, in lunar and uh, what's called cislunar orbit. So yeah, very exciting times. You know, I'm I'm glad you bring up the the terrestrial need for a space economy. I think a lot of people don't. I mean, at least consumers. You know, they're not going through their day to day thinking about how critical satellites are to every aspect of modern conveniences from GPS uh, and and beyond. So that alone, I think, is enough of a motivator to get other companies to think. Okay, you know. How are we going to stake our own claim in low Earth orbit to provide, uh, you know, better solutions to our customers, turn a larger profit and expand our market share, which, you know, I think is probably the most tangible opportunity for the space economy. However, you know, that alone already starts to present some issues and I think speaks to the larger need for reducing debris in low Earth orbit, which we're going to get into here in a second. But I want to share an interesting story recently that uh, I saw that I, I think, you know, is kind of analogous to what we're talking about today. And, you know, I might cite you actually for a larger interview uh, on something like this. So keep an eye out, Ron. I might be hitting you up. But, Great. Um, you know, just briefly wanted to run this by you because, you know, I think it is a perfect reflection of what we're talking about today. So very timely. Elon Musk's SpaceX just launched uh, 60 Starlink satellites a few weeks ago into low Earth orbit. Um, and that was actually immediately met with disdain from astronomers who were getting their view and research blocked by large streaks across the night sky that impeded their view of the stars and the work they were doing. And I think this speaks to the kind of miscommunication that we're seeing between the needs of public agencies, the wills of private entities and the average person who benefits from both. You know, I think that's at the core of some of these space economy issues we're about to dive into. So do you see some consistent miscommunication or lack of standardization for managing our limited space in space? Uh, and if so, why do you think there is that kind of miscommunication? You know, I don't know that I would call it miscommunication. Uh, when, Whenever there's a growth uh, in, in a new industry, you look back at historical examples at industrialization, the expansion out into the West, there's always going to be some friction, right, between the dis uh, interests of, of different stakeholders. So what we're seeing now is, is a focus on space traffic management and a general uh, consensus in the industry that we need better rules of the road for what's going on in, in space. The rules that, that are in place about, for example, debris mitigation, 
were written about 25 years ago, and they made sense then, but they really don't make sense in, in today's environment with uh, all of these launches that are scheduled to happen, et cetera. So I think there is that general consensus that, yeah, we need, we need, to, we need to take a look at the rules, come up with a better set of rules that make more sense, that fit today's business uh, environment. And, uh, and the government's trying to do that. The, the White House issued Space Directive 3, and uh, the Department of Commerce in the uh, Office of Space Transportation is is uh, engaging with industry and other government stakeholders within the U.S. as well as reaching out to partners and allies internationally to think about the space traffic management problem. Right? Um, how do we? Number one, there's space situational awareness (SSA). Uh, how do we track and know what's there so we can, uh, you know, avoid the pieces of debris? Uh, you have to know what's there and, and where things are first, right, before you can do anything about it. They're also thinking about how do they move to a regulatory regime that makes uh, sense in terms of ensuring space flight safety and sustainability of the space environment, while at the same time not putting so many regulations and so much of a burden on industry that uh, industry's hands are are, uh, are, are tied and, and uh, can't be competitive, right? So it's important to strike that balance. And I think uh, what we've seen both at the national level here in the U.S. and then at the international level, mainly led through efforts at the United Nations. Uh, the, the key word, I think, for the listeners there are uh, space traffic management, STM, and uh, mm. space situational awareness, SSA. Uh, let's pivot over to this space debris issue. It is the larger and more destructive issue as there is a growing amount of space debris building up in low Earth orbit. Uh, you'll definitely be able to explain this issue better than I can, so I'm not even going to give the intro. I think I'm just going to toss to you, Ron. Okay. Could you give us a breakdown of what has led to the current debris challenge that we face today? Uh, and could you kind of put into perspective the scale of what we're dealing with? I think maybe a lot of listeners might have seen the movie Gravity. And um, uh, it's a good uh, visual for what's called the Kessler syndrome, which is kind of like this runaway domino effect of debris hitting something else, which causes more debris, which then hits a lot of other things, which causes more debris. And you get this domino effect. Now, of course, the movie was made in Hollywood and, and you know, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's got a Hollywood slant on things. So definitely we don't you we're not going to see that actually happen uh, any anytime soon. Uh, although some people would argue that the Kessler syndrome is happening right now, it's just happening in slow motion, right? The point is to make sure that we never get to that point. So, you know, back when humans first launched things into space, when Sputnik first went up, there was one man-made object in, in space. And now we have thousands and thousands that are in space and uh, objects tend to stay up there, even in low Earth orbit, for, and sometimes for, for hundreds of years. So you have a satellite that becomes defunct. Um, or you have the upper stages of the rockets that put those satellites into orbit. Basically, they stay up there, you know, floating around. The rules that I talked about a little bit earlier say that uh, if you put a satellite up after its end of life, you have to bring it down within 25 years. That happens naturally at about 600 kilometers altitude. Above that could be, you know, hundreds in some cases, thousands of years where you have these things floating around. In terms of man-made objects that, that we're aware of, there's about 34,000 objects that are 10 centimeters or, or larger, so about the size of a softball. There's about close to a million 
objects that are between one centimeter and 10 centimeters uh, large. And then smaller pieces between one millimeter to one centimeter estimates are at about 130 million, you know. Uh, now, some of those are, of course, natural objects, but most of those are, are man-made. And even for the smaller pieces, you know, one centimeter piece of debris, right? So a, a, a small nut or bolt floating around in space. These things are actually traveling at 20, 30,000 miles an hour. It's going to pack a punch. And there are many cases where we've seen <clears throat> damage to uh, the space shuttle, for example, caused by a fleck of paint uh, that uh, hit the windshield of, of the space shuttle. Uh, there's really, unfortunately, not a whole lot we can do about the smaller pieces of debris right now, other than to track them using uh, our SS SSA networks and capabilities uh, in the U.S. And, and of our partners around the world. But the real focus, we believe, should be on keeping the problem from getting worse by making sure that the satellite owner operators are responsible stewards of space and bring down their defunct satellites on a, a you know reasonable time frame, and that includes satellites and, and the uh, upper stages that are up there. It's also incumbent upon governments to uh, look at what pieces of large debris, and, and in some cases, some of these rocket bodies that are left over in, in space can be up to eight tons, right? So you can imagine this, a huge bus just floating around like a big dead object in space, right? Some governments are looking at, well, which ones are the most dangerous ones? And which ones are, are we the owners of? And let's bring those down to make sure that they don't cause an issue to spaceflight safety. The, the Japanese government in particular, JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, mm -hmm. is taking the leadership on this. And, and they recently released a request for a proposal where they will fund a company to go up and, and uh, perform a debris removal mission to take down one of these dangerous objects in space. The European Space Agency, the head of the agency, recently uh, announced their priorities in space debris was uh, among those top priorities. They are also engaged in public-private partnerships to help uh, address the issue and bring down some of those dangerous pieces of, of debris. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge to space flight safety that we need to start thinking about, not just from a technology standpoint, but also like we talked about earlier from a regulatory and then also from a business perspective. Is there a business opportunity here? And we think there is. What is the you know critical mass of this issue? Let's say Astroscale wasn't doing the work it was doing. People weren't actively trying to remove the debris or minimize new debris entering low Earth orbit. When do we reach a tipping point where cleaning up debris ends up becoming more reactive than proactive? And, you know, what what is that timeline? How should people be treating the urgency of getting to managing low Earth orbit space debris? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly, like to give you a, a, a date. Sure. But I think that the point at which things become sustainable could come relatively quickly, right? So as I mentioned, there is a handful of uh, companies that are looking to launch mega constellations into low Earth orbit. And this is a great thing, by the way. This is fantastic because it's going to help enrich the, the economy here on Earth and grow that space economy that I talked about earlier, right? So uh, provide new services that uh, apps are going to evolve that we can't even even uh, imagine right now. So this is so this is a good thing. But the economics of low Earth orbit are fundamentally different than the economics of geosynchronous orbit. So geosynchronous orbit is about 23,000 miles away from, from Earth. And it's at the point where the rotation rate of the orbit matches the rotation rate of the Earth. And so it looks like the satellites are sitting above 
one spot on Earth. And that's where most of our telecommunication satellites, you know, when you see TV and it says via satellite, right? That, that's where those signals are, are coming from. And, you know, because it's so far away and it it's so expensive to get a satellite there, typically you have very large satellites with a lot of redundancy, what we call the exquisite systems, right? And they, they tend to, you know, uh, typically have lifespan of 15 or, or more years. Uh, the economics of low Earth orbit are a lot different. It takes a lot less energy and therefore it costs a lot less money to put a kilogram of mass into low Earth orbit. And so when you're talking about launch, and typically also satellites only last in LEO for five to seven years, maybe, you know, uh, because of the environmental conditions and also because the orbits are lower. So typically what, what you're seeing is uh, design for uh, cost efficiency, as a lot of companies are looking to launch thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit. And so we anticipate that we're going to see higher failure rates as a result. You're going to see these satellites that are still fairly large, right? About 10% we expect are, are, are going to fail. And so even if operators have a deorbit plan that has been you know, approved by the government, in many cases by the FCC, when these companies uh, uh, apply for their, their spectrum licenses, they have a deorbit plan for the satellites that they can still control at the end of life. The question is, you know, what happens to the satellites that you can't control? These dead rocks, right? as the uh, president of uh, uh, Radio Matt Desch calls them, right? You've got these dead rocks that are floating around in space. What do you do about those, right? And so you can imagine what happens if you have 10,000 satellites on, on orbit, just to pick a number. They're all kind of like in, in these, you know, small number of highways. Uh, they're all kind of following each other. And you've got 10% of them and you've got uh, that, that, are, that are dead, right, that you can't control. So now you've got a thousand dead objects that you constantly need to be avoiding and that other operators that are maybe crossing your orbital plane also have to try to avoid so that um, they don't cause more debris. And that, that's fundamentally the issue that's going to drive the, the sustainability problem. Now, you know, we also don't want to sound alarmist, right? Space is big, right? There, there's, there's a lot of space up there, right? Space is big, and these are still low-probability events, but they are high-impact events if they do happen. And they do happen, right? There, there have been examples of uh, satellites, uh, of iridium satellites, for example, uh, a few years ago, colliding with a, a dead Russian uh, satellite uh, that caused many more pieces of debris. So, uh, and rocket bodies break up fairly frequently. Sometimes there's fuel left over in them and uh, materials degrade naturally in space because of radiation and other aspects of the harsh environment of space. And uh, there've been, I think this year alone, I can't remember the exact number, I think something somewhere on the order of four leftover rocket bodies that have broken up and they turn into many small pieces of debris, right? While we don't want to be alarmist, it's also, we also have to realize that the, the economics of, and the failure rates that we expect to see in LEO together with the sheer numbers is going to cause a situation where, um, you know, in the next couple of years, it could really become unsustainable. So we mentioned a little earlier that there is a active um, partnership going on between venture capitalists, government agencies, large businesses to solve this issue. Let's start with the government side of this. Is there legislation in place that is trying to prevent residue space debris from building up or, you know, to kind of sign into law an act to clean up that space debris? Are you seeing it come top down in that way? And if so, what are some of the specifics there? Yeah, so we we don't see regulation, well, I'm sorry, we, we don't see legislation happening anytime uh, soon. There, there are no efforts that, that we're aware of. There uh, could potentially be language directing uh, NASA and other government agencies to do something about the problem. 
But I think the path that we're likely to see is regulation, government agencies basically setting uh, standards, defining the, the kinds of behaviors that they would like to see industry in, engage in. And we think that's the right path, right? We don't necessarily think that governments should dictate a specific technology solution, like you need to put this on, on your satellite to address the problem. We should let the market determine what technologies and, and what services best fulfill the needs of, of the customers for, for their own risk mitigation purposes, while at the same time complying with, with government regulation. So there are a handful of different efforts, um, the national and international level, like I mentioned, that are, are focused on, on doing just that. And I think that's the, 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 right, the right focus. So legislation, no. Regulation, uh, yes. Uh, which is a, a good thing. At the international level, we have the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, UN COPULUS, which is a mouthful of an acronym. But uh, that, that committee is, for many years has been working to try to establish a consensus among nations about how to deal with the, the issue. They issued uh, 21 guidelines uh, recently that basically say if you want to be a responsible steward of the space environment and ensure space flight safety, you should follow these guidelines. And it's completely voluntary, but it's a great step in, in the right direction. And you see the U.S. and like-minded nations basically adopting uh, a lot of those guidelines. We as a private company have adopted all of the ones that apply to, to industry. And then at the national level here within the U.S., there's uh, a handful of different forums, if you will. Uh, there's uh, confers which is the Consortium for Execution of Rendezvous and Servicing Operations. So that was a group that was originally started by uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Programs Agency, but is now basically an industry-led organization that is bringing together companies that are involved in on-orbit servicing. And we're talking a lot about space debris, but you know, Astroscale is basically an on-orbit services company, space debris removal being one of those on-orbit services that we see developing as the new economy, right? So it's a confers is a group of on-orbit services companies that, that are coming together to talk about uh, and, and develop industry standards. So it's an industry group taking ownership of the problem and talking about you know standards and best practices, which as companies implement, will eventually become uh, norms of behavior. And so that's the other angle. You've got the, the top down where you've got governments, national, international, that are gonna be developing regulations. And on the other hand, you have industry not waiting around, taking the lead, saying, okay, what makes sense for all of us together, uh, defining uh, standards, et cetera, and ad adopting best practices and developing norms of behavior that are in, in, in industry's best interest. Uh, just to name a couple of others, there's the Space Safety Coalition, which is a, a, a coalition of the willing, about 20 odd satellite operators and industry players, uh, including Astroscale, that um, have come together to address some of these same issues and make recommendations on spaceflight safety. Uh, you have the Space Sustainability Rating, uh, this was uh, announced in, I believe, May of, of this year by the World Economic Forum. And uh, you have, well, you have the World Economic Forum and MIT that are basically uh, working to come up with, with a rating, kind of like you have lead ratings for, for buildings that are energy efficient. It's a similar concept for, for satellites that, that are sustainable. So that's an effort that, that's going on uh, right now. And there's probably any number of other ones, but those are some key ones that, that we, Astroscale, uh, is engaged with. And how do you foresee those kinds of partnerships um, actually playing out? You know, in practice, uh, what kind of recommendations do you think will be adopted by governments and actually be passed into law beyond just industry coalitions looking to create 
inter-industry standards? There are two key elements of any new, and again, I, I don't, I don't see any legislation coming out on this. Maybe in the future, what we see in the short sure. term is is uh, regulation on the part of uh, government agencies. And I think there's two key considerations where we're going to see change. Right. So first is that 25-year rule that I talked about earlier. Right. And that's a guideline, and we expect that that's going to come down from 25 years to probably on the order of five years. So once the satellite is dead, you know, it can be up there as long as it's functional. But once that satellite is defunct, uh, no longer operational, owner operators will have a certain number of years, maybe five in the future, to, to bring that satellite down and get it out of harm's way. The second piece of regulation that we think are gonna, is going to change is what's called the post-mission disposal rate. So how much of the stuff that you put in the space do you have to bring back down? Right now, the rule of thumb is, is 90%. You know, if you have one satellite, it, the rule kind of doesn't make any sense. But if you've got 100 satellites, if you put up 100, you should bring back down uh, 90. So we think that that number is going to go up to 95, potentially eventually higher uh, as time goes on and technology improves uh, and the cost efficiency of being able to do this improves, uh, you will probably see that number, you know, creep up to uh, 97%, for example. But I think those are two so, uh, two key elements to uh, changes in the regulatory environment that are absolutely critical is the, the number of years to bring down your, your, your dead satellites after they're dead and the post-mission disposal rate. And there's a lot of discussion around those those two topics. The other piece is enforcement, right? Where right now those are guidelines, but they're really not enforceable. And there are, uh, unfortunately, a lot, historically have been a lot of uh, owner operators that, that don't comply with those guidelines. So I think that we're likely to see a little bit more focus on, on enforcement. You know, and then the other part that I mentioned earlier, SSA, space situational awareness, keeping track of where things are, issuing collision avoidance, alerts to owner operators. I think you're gonna, we're going to see a lot more focus on that area. The uh, U.S. Air Force basically does it right now as a pro bono service. Uh, whenever they, they, you know, because they're tracking everything and whenever they see that something might collide within a couple of days, they'll issue a, a warning message to private operators saying, hey, we think your objects are going to collide. You guys can do whatever you want about it. And I think we're going to see a little bit more formalization over that, perhaps the Department of Commerce here in the U.S. taking over responsibility for providing those conjunction assessments, collision avoidance assessments uh, to, to owner operators. Uh, so we're going to see a lot of changes in space situational awareness and how it's handled right now. So let's flip over to some of the technologies that are being put into place to make this happen. I know there's both technology to be able to uh, track, like you said, uh, the smaller particles in that debris field, um, but there's also technologies that Astroscale is putting to work to minimize fresh debris as well as capture and remove existing debris. So break down some of those solutions that not only you're bringing, but also some of these other uh, companies within inter-industry partnerships are bringing to the table that you think um, you know the industry should keep an eye on or are the most exciting and most uh, beneficial to solving this issue. You know, we've been talking about the business aspect of it and, and the regulatory aspect of it, which is fantastic because those are uh, the three pillars, right? Uh, business, the sure. regulatory environment, and, and technology that really makes us successful as a business. So the technology piece, yeah. So our solution is basically to develop a servicer satellite that will go up and service satellites uh, on orbit. And we envision a future where our servicer satellites are providing a variety of different services. They're, they're providing fueling uh, satellites, for example, 
Um, right now, a satellite goes up and when it runs out of fuel, it's, it's done. So satellites in GEO in particular, their lives can be extended by uh, refueling them or providing station keeping services uh, for them when they run out of fuel on low Earth orbit that allows them to move into different orbits, uh, etc. The, the servicer satellite is really at the heart of uh, the technological solution. And we are developing what we're calling uh, the end of life services by Astroscale series of satellites or ELSA. Uh, and we're actually in the process of uh, building a demonstrator called ELSA-D, the D for demonstrator, which will launch next year, about mid next year, and uh, will demonstrate a lot of the underlying technologies. So our business model on the commercial uh, side of the business is to have the owner operators launch with a docking plate on them, you know, when they launch. And that docking plate is uh, relatively small, like the size of a salad dish, right? And uh, weighs about 200, 300 grams, so very lightweight, doesn't cause any kind of other interference on the satellite. Uh, but the docking plate is there on the satellite already so that in the future, then, if the owner operator wants to outsource the uh, the removal of their satellite, or if it's uh, dead on orbit and they need a backup plan, then we have our services satellite that can go up and dock with it. Now, what are some of the key technologies that, that goes into actually docking with, with another satellite? Well, there's the obvious part, right? The part that actually docks with the other satellite. And we have chosen to go with a magnetic robotic arm to do that. So we've got a robotic arm that would then uh, basically reach out and latch onto that docking plate. And in order to even get close to another satellite, it's quite a difficult thing to do in space. We have a lot of uh, technology that we're developing in the guidance navigation and control or the GNC subsystem. It's basically a lot of hardware that lets the satellite get to the right place. There's a lot of automation and AI that's going into uh, allowing the satellite to figure out how the client satellite is positioned. And a lot of times if they're dead, the client satellites are actually gonna be tumbling out of control, right? So uh, there's a lot of automation that goes into being able to detect that docking plate and then due to the mm. markings on it, uh, basically use machine vision to figure out and do calculations about, okay, the satellite is moving, you know, it's tumbling like this, and then be able to match that tumble rate and, and dock with the satellite. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, so for the listeners out there, if you go to our, our homepage, astroscale.com, there's a three-minute video on there that explains our demonstration mission that's going to launch next year, and it'll show a couple of different phases that, that we plan to engage and test out some of those key technologies if they want to see a visual representation of that. Yeah, so those are the robotics, the AI, uh, the GNC. There's also a lot of systems engineering and safety engineering that's going into the development of, uh, of our mission profile to make sure that our satellites are approaching and docking with other satellites in a safe manner and that obviously we're not bumping into other things and causing more debris. So there's a lot of safety engineering. And then the ground segment, the the systems and, and all of the things on, on the ground that are needed to control satellites. We've uh, also developed our own uh, technologies and our, gr our own ground segment out of our subsidiary in the UK, Astroscale UK, uh, which is purpose-built specifically for these um, uh, docking missions, what we call RPO, Rendezvous and Proximity Operations. Uh, anytime you've got satellites getting close to other satellites, you've got a lot of unique requirements. And so we've got a purpose-built um, ground segment in, in the UK. Those are That's just a snapshot of some of the key technologies. One that I didn't mention is propulsion. 
Uh, we're, we're not a propulsion company and we don't want to get into the business of making little uh, engines for uh, for satellites, but we're working with a lot of partners. <laughs> sure. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough science, right? So uh, you mentioned uh, inter-industry partnerships and, and that's one key area where we're working with a lot of uh, partners to extend the state of the art relative to propulsion. Uh, we have many more choices than we used to. There's electric propulsion, there's the traditional chemical propulsion, and different phases of the mission have different requirements. And so we're, we're talking to um, a lot of uh, suppliers and partners about developing new technologies that help us do our mission more cost effectively. You know, and then we have other partners in a variety of different areas. The docking plate that we see being adopted in the marketplace uh, has been developed in, in in partnership with another company right here in, in Colorado. They, they did some of the mechanical engineering uh, things, and we contributed to some of the AI and visual recognition technologies. So these these kind of partnerships, you know, bringing the best of, of, of class from different companies to offer solutions to the marketplace is an absolute critical part of the growth of that economy. The trillion dollar economy, I didn't throw that number out earlier, but there's a lot of talk about the growth of that trillion dollar economy. And that's that's what we're, we're trying to help develop. That's a big number there, Ron. Big number. Big number. Big number. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So just to kind of wrap up vision for not only some of the technologies that Astroscale is bringing to the table, but also just business practices for this industry. What is the game plan moving forward for Astroscale as a business and how does this uh, maybe reflect how some other businesses in the industry are expanding? And let me get a little more specific with what I mean mm-hmm. there. Do you think that some of this technology uh, or some of these solutions uh, will be embedded into the industry through more of a licensing of technology partnership you know, between other big space economy players or government agencies where Astroscale ends up producing the tech putting it out there um, and sort of enabling, you know, through uh, royalties and um, through these partnerships, allowing other companies to bring that technology to market? Or does Astroscale plan on being one of the key players in solving that issue, retaining some of the technology, retaining some of those solutions, and instead bring value through actual partnerships between multiple companies to solve different aspects of the issue. What's the game plan for y'all? And then what do you foresee as kind of the game plan for the industry as a whole? Yeah. So, you know, like I said earlier, it's an in, it's interesting times in the space industry. Uh, as you pointed out, there's a lot of investment coming in. There's a lot of new companies that are bringing in money and, and uh, venture uh, capital and, and are developing new and interesting technologies. There's a lot of talk about new space there's a lot of new companies that are entering the market. And then you've got your established players, right? Your, you know, Boeing, Lockheed, Airbus, et cetera, which are also trying to be as lean and innovative as, as possible. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic in, in the marketplace. Uh, to answer your question specifically about our business model, we want to be a services provider. We want to provide on-orbit services to customers, again, to satellites on-orbit that will help enhance our customers' Uh, value proposition, uh, make them more cost effective, whether that's uh, refueling or servicing their satellites or uh, deorbiting them at the end of life when when those satellites are defunct, we want to provide those services for them. Now, the 
question there again is to what extent are, are we going to build our own satellite? So we're building LCD right now. It's being built in, in Japan. And in, in the future, we're, we're looking at options uh, which could range from uh, building our own satellites from the ground up or working with partners to basically develop uh, what's called the bus or kind of like the the, uh, the chassis, if you will. And we do the integration of some of those key payloads uh, on onto uh, on, onto that chassis, onto the bus. So uh, there's, I think there's a lot of room for um, industry partnerships to bear fruit and, and bring solutions to, to the marketplace. Some companies will license their, their uh, technologies. We, we have always seen that in the past, and I expect that we're going to continue to see that, where certain companies have key subsystem uh, uh, technologies that they it's more cost effective for them to license or for example we want to be vertically integrated to achieve economies of scale and control quality ensure on-time product delivery and therefore we decide we want to build something in the house and we might license that technology instead of spending all of the research and development money all of the non-recurring engineering uh, cost that goes into developing a new technology in a lot of cases it probably will make more sense for us to to license that technology and bring it in house and develop things in house so i think it's going to be a combination of things is there potentially a future where maybe we're licensing some of these things uh, some of our own technologies out uh, to other companies definitely within the realm of possibility but our business model right now is to to be that that service provider you know that that all-purpose tow truck in space that's gonna top you off it's gonna uh, clean your windshield wipers for you and uh, maybe uh, get you out of harm's way tow you somewhere else if you need to go somewhere else all right, Ron Lopez, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Again, we were sitting down with Ron Lopez, President and Managing Director of Astroscale US. Thanks again. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Hold me to my word. I'm definitely going to be sourcing you for some big scale legislative breakdowns here for this industry. I think there's a lot of interesting regulation to analyze and really uh, speak to how that intersection of business and policy affects the space economy. So again, Ron, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure being with you here today. I appreciate it. Thanks. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Sciences Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to MarketScale.com slash industries. Again, MarketScale.com slash industries. And there you can find plenty of not only sciences content, but also videos, podcasts, and articles from a variety of different industries. And make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.